Welcome to On The Mix, a podcast where we talk about everything music. And how this podcast is going to be broken down is it's going to be in sections where each kind of podcast will be like an A-side or a B-side to like a mixtape. So for example, right, this very first podcast, right, that I'm going to be doing is about Nirvana. So we're going to be starting the grunge series. And I'm so excited. Grunge, I had to start with grunge. Grunge is one of my favorite all-time genres of music, and I could talk about it all day. And with the bands that I'm going to be talking about in this series, I'm just so excited to get right into it. And so, as I said today, we're going to be talking about Nirvana. There's so much to dive into, Kurt. It's kind of crazy. But just to kind of consolidate things and to make it more about the band Nirvana and going into a little bit about each of the members. Just so we don't go over a lot of time, that's just how I'm going to choose to do it. I'm your host, Lindsay. I know I forgot to say that. Um, This is my first episode. It might be a little bit jumbled here and there, but bear with me. So without further ado, let's start from the main man himself, where all of this began, Kurt Cobain. So Kurt was born February 20th in 1967 in Aberdeen, Washington. His mother, Wendy, was a waitress, and his father, Donald, was an automotive mechanic. And I had a little bit of a fun fact that I wanted to share with you guys. Kurt Cobain was really interested in his Irish heritage. Um, He really wanted to know, like, where the name Cobain came from and, like, where his roots were, where his ancestry lied. And I really liked that he was really into that. So his Irish ancestors, and I hope I say this right, were from Carrickmore County, Tyrone, in Ireland. I hope I said that right. I do apologize if I totally butchered that. Apparently, they were shoemakers, originally named Cobain without the I-N on it, so it was spelled C-O-B-A-N-E. His ancestors first settled in Cornwall, Ontario, Canada, and then eventually in Washington, where he was born. His maternal uncle Chuck played in a band called the Beachcombers. His aunt Mary Earl, or Marie, played guitar in bands around town as well. His great-uncle Delbert was an Irish tenor, appearing in the 1930 film King of Jazz, which I thought was kind of an interesting fact. He was encouraged by his grandmother Iris to draw, and it's well known that Kurt Cobain was a prolific artist. He would draw cartoon characters everywhere, in school, his walls, like, everywhere. Some of his favorite cartoons to draw were Donald Duck and The Creature from the Black Lagoon. Kurt was considered a happy child with the keen sensitivity and care for others. He began singing at age two, and he listened to artists like the Ramones and Electric Light Orchestra. He would sing songs like Arlo Guthrie's Motorcycle Song, The Beatles' Hey Jude, Terry Jack's Seasons in the Sun, and the Monkees' TV theme song, which I thought was really funny. But the Hey, that is a really catchy theme song, so that's pretty awesome. Kurt's parents divorced at age nine, and it's widely known that at this point, his happy disposition as a child before this point completely switched to something totally reclusive. Kurt said about the divorce, quote, I remember feeling ashamed for some reason. I was ashamed of my parents. I couldn't face some of my friends at school anymore because I desperately wanted to have the classic, you know, typical family, mother, father. I wanted that security. So I resented my parents for quite a few years because of that. Both of his parents remarried. His father remarried a woman named Jenny Westby. 
And Westby had two children of her own, Mindy and James. So all of them kind of became a family where Kurt lived with his father, his stepmother, and her two kids. On January 1979, Jenny gave birth to Chad Cobain, who is Kurt's direct stepbrother. And it was at this point in time that Kurt really began to resent his stepmother, Jenny. His mother, Wendy, also dated an abusive man, and Kurt witnessed several occasions of domestic abuse. One particular incident was so bad that his mom was hospitalized with a broken arm. Kurt was having a really hard time struggling with the concept of what family means and trying to grasp what this divorce means for him and how to balance who he is and what mom and dad means and what a family means. And um, in school, he started showing signs of aggression. And at one point, he was even bullying a boy at school. Donald, his father, and Jenny, his stepmom, took him to a therapist. And the therapist said that he would benefit from a single family environment, which makes a lot of sense. On June 28, 1979, his mother, Wendy, granted full custody of Kurt to his father, Donald. But Kurt bounced around from home to home, living with different family members and friends for different reasons. Kurt would have outbursts or there would be issues just within the family or within the household and he would be kicked out or he would move on his own. So he would just kind of float around from house to house, family to family, friend to friend. At one point, he lived with his friend, Jesse Reed, and his family were born again Christians. So it was interesting for Kurt because at this time he was going to church with them. He was learning about Christianity. So at this point in particular, he became a devout Christian, but he would later denounce Christianity. And the song Lithium that is on their album, Nevermind, is about this experience living with Jesse as like a little fun fact, which I didn't know. For his 14th birthday in 1971, his uncle offered him either a bike or a guitar for his birthday present. And of course, Kurt wanted the guitar. He started learning how to play songs like Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven, Queen's Another One Bites the Dust, and The Cars, My Best Friend's Girlfriend. At school, Kurt befriended a gay student and he was subsequently bullied by his school peers who made fun of Kurt for concluding that he was also gay because he was friends with this gay student, which is totally ridiculous. Kurt said about this experience in particular in an interview, he said, he liked being associated with a gay identity because he didn't like people. And when they thought he was gay, they left him alone. He said, quote, I started being really proud of the fact that I was gay, even though I wasn't. Through art and electronics classes, this is where he befriended Roger Buzz Osborne, singer and guitarist of the Melvins. And he introduced Kurt to punk rock and hardcore music. Uh, the Melvins are a huge focal point of Nirvana themselves because, as you'll see, the Melvins kind of introduced each band member to each other, which is kind of interesting. Kurt claimed that his first concert that he attended was the Melvins. In an interview with Option Magazine in 1992, Kurt said this about the experience. Quote, The Melvins started playing punk rock and had a free concert right behind Thriftway Supermarket where Buzz worked and they plugged into the city power supply and played punk rock music for about 50 redneck kids. When I saw them play, it just blew me away. I was instantly a punk rocker. I abandoned all my friends because they didn't like any of the music. Then I asked Buzz to make me that compilation tape of punk rock songs and got a spike haircut. Two weeks before graduation, he dropped out of Aberdeen High School for not having enough credits to graduate. He was living with his mother at the time and she told him he needed to either get a job or leave. 
A week later, after finding his clothes and belongings packed in boxes, Kurt began couch surfing at his friends' houses. He also claimed at one point at this time that he lived under the Wishka, I hope I said that right, Wishka River during periods of homelessness. He was really down in his luck at this point where he had really not a lot of places to live and to call home and to have a roof over his head. So when he was having those periods of homelessness, he was living under the Wishka River. And this is where the inspiration for the song Something in the Way came from. During this time, he also formed the band Fecal Matter with himself singing and playing the guitar. The Melvins drummer Dale Crover was playing bass and Greg Hokinson, <laughs> I hope I said that right, Hokinson, playing drums. The band disbanded, however, when the Melvins supported their debut EP, Six Songs. And it was around this time frame that he met future bassist of Nirvana, Chris Novoselic, at the Melvins' usual practice base. Chris was also a devout punk rock fan, so it just made a lot of sense that t- the two of them would kind of come together and form a really strong friendship. Chris's mother was a hairdresser, and the two of them would play music together in her salon. So now let's take a look at some of Chris's upbringing and a bit of his backstory up until the point where he meets Kurt Cobain. So Chris was born on May 16, 1969 in Compton, California. He was the son of Croatian immigrants Christo and Maria. He lived in Compton for one year before he and his parents moved to the largely Croatian neighborhood of San Pedro in Los Angeles. He has a younger brother, Robert, born in 1968, and a younger sister, Diana, born in 1973. He recalls his first memory of listening to music was Chuck Berry. And as a bit of a fun fact, I kind of learned that growing up he had a severe underbite, but he eventually got corrective surgery for that. Chris was interested in bands like Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, The Who, Van Halen, and Aerosmith. And he also liked listening to a couple of Yugoslavian bands, which I cannot pronounce and I will not pronounce them here (laughs) because I will butcher them. In 1980, at age 14, his parents had him live with family back in Croatia. While there, he became interested in punk rock. He discovered bands like the Sex Pistols and the Ramones. He cited some of his fundamental bass players that influenced him as a bass player himself were Paul McCartney, Gene Simmons, Geezer Butler, and John Entwistle. His brother Robert introduced Chris to Kurt Cobain, who was a friend of Robert. Robert told Kurt that it was his older brother, Chris, who was into the punk rock music. At one point, Kurt gave Chris a demo tape of his band Fecal Matter and asked Chris if he wanted to join a band with him. He kind of waffled on a little bit, like, yeah, I'll listen to it, and he never really did, but eventually he got around to listening to it and he really liked it. Particularly, he said he liked the song Spank Through. So now at this point in time, Kurt and Chris have met up, and the first band that they formed together was called The Sellouts, which was a Creedence Clearwater revival tribute band, but the project fell apart about after only a month. They recruited drummer Aaron Burkhard into their group, and this would be considered the earlier, most earliest, rather, formation of Nirvana with these three members. They practiced writing original material, and initially they called the band Skid Row, Pen Chu, and Ted Ed Fred. Kurt had taken an interest in Buddhist philosophy and came up with finally calling the band Nirvana. And a quote that Kurt had on naming the band Nirvana is this, quote, I wanted a name that was kind of beautiful or nice and pretty instead of a mean, raunchy punk name like Angry Samoans. After Kurt moved to Tacoma, Washington and Kurt moved to Olympia, Washington, they temporarily lost contact with Aaron and practiced their material with Dale cover of The Melvins. They recorded their first demo tapes as Nirvana in January of 1988. 
Shortly after this, Dale moved to San Francisco and recommended Dave Foster as his replacement for drums. So at this point now, Nirvana is going to run through a lot of drummers and it's going to be kind of crazy before they meet Dave, right? So Dave Foster only lasted a few months with the band. Aaron Burkhardt was temporarily back with the band as well, but left after telling Kurt one day that he was too hungover to practice. It was at this point that Kurt and Chris put out an ad for a replacement drummer in The Rocket, which was a music magazine. But unfortunately, they didn't receive any responses that they were satisfied with, so that kind of went nowhere. But a mutual friend of the boys introduced them to Chad Channing. But according to Chad, he never really got the official, you're in, from Kurt. But according to Kurt, in a 1993 interview with MTV, he said that Chad was fine as a drummer, but the sounds and the style of his drumming just wasn't really in line with where he saw the band kind of forming. So that's kind of why Chad didn't stick around for too long. But Chad did, however, continue to jam with Chris and Kurt, playing his first show with them on May 1988. In November of 1988, Nirvana released its first single, a cover of Love Buzz, a song by Shocking Blues, under the Sub Pop record label. Sub Pop marketed the band as a bunch of logging town hicks, which, of course, they absolutely hated that. Who would want to be dubbed as a bunch of logging town hicks? In December of 1988, they began recording their debut album, Bleach. Bleach was influenced by the Melvins, the 1980s punk rock band Mudhoney, and the 1970s rock of Black Sabbath. The money for the recording sessions of the Bleach album was listed at just about $600. Prior to the release of Bleach, Nirvana became the first band to sign an extended contract with Sub Pop. Bleach was released in June of 1989 and sold 40,000 copies upon initial release. However though, Kurt was disappointed by the label's lack of promotion and distribution for the album. They went on to nationally tour the album and it subsequently became a hit on college radio. In late 1989, the band released their Blue EP with producer Steve Fisk. And here's a quote that Kurt said about the sound of the band at this stage. Quote, the early songs were really angry, but as time goes on, the songs are getting poppier and poppier as I get happier and happier. The songs are now about conflicts and relationships, emotional things with other human beings. In April 1990, the band began to work on their next album with producer Butch Vig at Smart Studios in Madison, Wisconsin. And of course, this would go on to become the Nevermind album. Kristen Kerr became annoyed with Chad Channing's drumming, and Chad was complaining that he had no hand in the songwriting process. So Chad just kind of eventually left. That July, Nirvana recorded the song Sliver with Mudhoney drummer Dan Peters. In September, Buzz Osborne of the Melvins introduced Chris and Kurt to Dave Grohl. Dave's band Scream out of Washington, D.C. had just broken up, so it was the perfect timing for Dave to kind of slide right into Nirvana. Upon arriving in Seattle, Dave auditioned for Chris and Kurt. Chris has said that they knew in two minutes that Dave was their drummer. So now we're going to be talking about the backstory and kind of the upbringing of Dave Grohl as he meets Kurt and Christ. So Dave was born on January 4th, 1969 in Warren, Ohio. His mother, Virginia, was a teacher and his father, James, was a news writer and an award-winning journalist. When Dave was young, his family moved to Springfield, Virginia, and at age seven, his parents got divorced. He grew up with his mother pretty much after this point, after the divorce. At age 12, he began learning to play guitar, growing tired of the lessons he began teaching himself, which you'll see is a pattern here with Dave. He does not like the structure of lessons. He's like, yeah, I'll just do it myself. At 13, he and his sister spent the summer in Illinois with their cousin Tracy. 
It was there that he began learning about punk rock music by going to shows that Tracy would take them to. His first concert, he said, was Naked Ray Gun at the Cubby Bear in 1982. He attended Thomas Jefferson High School in Virginia, and he was elected vice president of his freshman class. And what I found pretty funny was before he made his morning announcements over the intercom, he would try to sneak in little songs, like bits of songs from the band Circle Jerks and Bad Brains, which I thought, that's kind of really funny. His mother, Virginia, said that she transferred Dave to a Catholic school in Alexandria because she thought his, um, his use of, um, shall we say, the devil's lettuce was uh, impacting his grades in a negative way, which I also thought that was a really funny, like, <laughs> that was a really funny fact as well. Like, that's so funny. He stayed there for two years, and of course, you putting Dave Grohl in a Catholic school, that's not gonna work, right? So he transferred again to Annandale High School. He played in several bands in school, including being a guitarist for a band called Freak Baby. When Freak Baby was reshuffling their lineup, it was then that Dave played the drums. It was at this point that he was also teaching himself how to play. So he was taking drumming lessons, but then he quit and he taught himself how to play drums. He said that Russ drummer Neil Peart was his early influence, and he also cited Led Zeppelin's drummer John Bonham as his main influence. He said that he also learned how to play drums from just listening to Rush and punk rock bands too. So he was still playing with the band Freak Baby and they changed their name to Mission Impossible. So Mission Impossible disbanded after some point and Dave later joined the hardcore punk band Drain Bamage. That was gonna be so hard for me to say uh, in December of 1985. The band ended two years later when Dave joined the band Scream without any warning. He auditioned for Scream at 17 to fill the drumming position. And what was interesting was Dave lied about his age, claiming to be older in order to be considered for the role in the band. They let him in. They're like, yep, okay, you can join us. And uh, he dropped out of school in his junior year at this point in time. So Dave was happy. He was hanging out with Scream, playing the drums there for the next four years at this point. They recorded some live albums and two studio albums. And while playing with Scream, he befriended the Melvins. So you can see the Melvins kind of <laughs> wormed their way into all three of these people, Dave, Chris, and Kurt. After Scream suddenly broke up, Dave phoned up Buzz and he asked for his advice on what to do next. Buzz suggested that he auditioned for Nirvana as they were looking for a drummer, because it clearly was not going well on that front. Uh, it was just not good. So now at this point, three of them are together, in what is known as Nirvana. Dave Grohl, Chris Novoselic, and Kurt Cobain. So now we're gonna break it down into Nirvana during the years 1991 through 1992 first. So the three of them under Nirvana was again recording with Sub Pop Records for some time, but after being disenchanted with them, Nirvana began to look for a record deal with a major label instead. So Kurt and Chris talked to Susan Silver, who was the manager for Soundgarden and Alice in Chains. She introduced them to agent Don Muller and Alan Mintz. Mintz began to spread Nirvana demo tapes around to major labels looking for deals for them. And good friend Kim Gordon of Sonic Youth heavily recommended DGC Records to them in 1990. And obviously, that's the record label that they went with. So back to April in 1990, the band began to record their second album, Nevermind, in Wisconsin. Once the recording sessions were completed, Butch Vig and the band began to mix the album. However, this is where some trouble starts to come in. 
Due to the recording sessions running behind on schedule, it resulted in the mixes being deemed as disappointing to the band. So Andy Wallace, who was a mixer for the band Slayer, was brought in to create the final mix. But even after the album was released, the band still said that they were unsatisfied with how the album was mixed, and Kurt deemed it as being too polished. But Nevermind was released on September 24th, 1991. And we all know how the story goes with that one. So DGC Records was hoping to sell at least 250,000 copies of Nevermind. They were hoping that it would really, at least do really good, right? But the single Smells Like Teen Spirit gained in popularity, being boosted by major airplay on the radios and by MTV from the popular music video. And I kind of wanted to give a bit of backstory on the music video itself for Smells Like Teen Spirit, just because it's such an iconic music video for a lot of people that I thought just giving a little bit of information on like how how the recording of that video went down and kind of the backstory of that went down would be interesting to some. So the band put out an advertisement in the papers looking for people ages 18 to 25 to join the music video to play as extras, right, in the background. And they were asking them to adopt like a high school persona of either like a preppy person, a punk nerd jock, you know, something similar to that, right? Just to kind of give a variety look to make it look as realistic as possible that this was like a school assembly, right? So the video was filmed at the GMT studio stage six in Culver City on Saturday, August 17th at 11.30 a.m. Samuel Bayer directed the music video and this was his first music video that he ever directed. The concept for the video was a school concert which ended in anarchy and riot and it took inspiration from the 1979 film Over the Edge and the rock and roll high school film by the Ramones. The estimated budget was between $30,000 and $50,000. And the story goes, as the extras were seated on the bleachers for hours, listening to the band play the song over and over again, you know, to get the shots right for the video and stuff, the crowd was getting really rowdy, really anxious. They just weren't having it, right? So Kurt used this to the advantage of the video and he asked the director to allow the crowd to mosh pit. So that's what was going on during the video. You know, you see these kids and they're riding and they're like moshing, right? That was real, that was genuine, that wasn't like necessarily acted. The video itself received very positive reviews. MTV ranked the music video at number three on its 100 greatest music videos ever made in 1999. Yeah, I would have to agree with that. <laughs> By Christmas time of 1991, Nevermind was selling 400,000 copies a week in the US. Totally exceeding their initial expectations, right? And it was reaching the top of the charts worldwide. Chris said in a 1993 interview with MTV that he calls Nevermind a quote, rite of passage album. And this is a quote from Billboard magazine the month that Nevermind was released that I found that was interesting. So they proclaimed that, quote, Nirvana is that rare band that has everything, critical acclaim, industry respect, pop radio appeal, and a rock-solid college-slash-alternative base. Nevermind went on to eventually sell 7 million copies in the U.S. and over 30 million copies worldwide. Like, that's unbelievable numbers, you know? 
Nirvana's success at this time was credited as ending the hair metal scene and putting forth the popular grunge music genre in the spotlight, along with obviously other bands at this time. But they were really put forth as the face of grunge. Dave went on to say that their popularity skyrocketed when they went on their big European tour for Nevermind and that they played with Sonic Youth. And Kurt said it was an honor to have played alongside Sonic Youth. They absolutely loved Sonic Youth and Sonic Youth loved them. And this is where some of the sadness kind of comes through, right? At this time, Kurt's heroin use was starting to become more apparent and starting to take a toll on his health. During the band's 1992 SNL performance, Kurt fell asleep due to having taken heroin before the photo shoot, right, for the SNL skit. You know how SNL, they take photos of the bands or of the talent or the actors, you know, and they promote it with that. So he was falling asleep during the photo shoot because he had taken heroin right beforehand. In the morning, actually, of their SNL performance, Kurt had a near-death experience after shooting heroin, but... Courtney Love resuscitated him. So it was at this time that rumors were beginning to spread that Nirvana would break up, citing Kurt's worsening health conditions due to his chronic stomach problems. Basically, Kurt from a young age was experiencing severe stomach problems. And he experienced that up until his last moment here on earth. The way that he was self-medicating with his stomach problems was with heroin. And Kurt said that at the height of their popularity, unfortunately, he started self-medicating using heroin to help cover the pain. So he became so dependent on heroin to get him through the stomach problems. Not only that, but him and his wife, Courtney Love at the time, they were also doing drugs together. So it was just a bad combination of a lot of things. And he was really, he was so desperate for the pain to stop. So I feel, I feel horrible that he had to turn to drugs. That's awful, just to deal with the pain. I didn't talk about Courtney Love really that much either because again, that could go really deep um, just with Kurt's story alone. But at this point in time, him and Courtney were dating for a little while, right? And they married on February 24th, 1992 in Hawaii. And then in August 18th of that year, 1992, their daughter, Frances Bean Cobain, was born. And what I thought was really cool as well that I didn't really notice was that they used a sonogram of an unborn Frances as the cover of the single Lithium. It was around this time too that Nirvana headlined at the 1992 England Reading Festival on August 30th, amid these health rumors that Kurt was deteriorating, right? So they put those rumors aside and they said, no, we're going to the England Reading Festival. <laughs> like, no, everything's fine, right? But this festival, right, the England Reading Festival, it's been regarded as one of their most memorable performances of their whole career. And days later, Nirvana performed at the MTV Music Video Awards, despite the network's refusal to let the band sing their new song, Rate Me, off the album. And they did receive awards for Best Alternate Music Video and Best New Artist at this time. So between the time that Nevermind was released to between the time that In Utero was released. They wanted Nirvana to come out with another album, um, but the record label released a compilation album that we all know as Incesticide that came out on December of 1992, alongside Sub Pop as kind of a joint venture that the two of them came up with. So it was a compilation album of kind of like rarities or B-sides, um, songs that 
they performed earlier on in their career, kind of around like the Bleach era, if you will. As Nevermind had already been out for about 15 months at this point and yielded a fourth single from In Bloom, the labels didn't really heavily promote this record, but it was certified gold by February of 1993. And I wanted to put a little bit more information too about the In Bloom music video, which I think is equally as famous and influential as the Smells Like Teen Spirit video. What I didn't know was that there's two versions of the In Bloom video. So there's one called the alternate version, and there's one called the Nevermind version, which is what we all know. So the alternate version was filmed in New York City in April 1990. It has footage of the band walking around Manhattan, as well as rehearsal footage from the band's show at Maxwell's in Hoboken, New Jersey on April 28th. This video was first released in 1991 on the Sub Pop Video Network Volume 1 compilation and it was re-released on the DVD of the Nirvana Rarities box set called With the Lights Out in 2004. So now, this version that we all know as the Nevermind version, this video was directed by Kevin Curlsake. Curlake. Curls... Curslake. <laughs> oh my god, let me say that over again. Kevin Curslake. I do apologize. I will be saying stuff wrong in this. I so apologize. He directed the previous music videos for their singles, Come As You Are and Lithium. It first aired in November of 1992. According to Kurt, he said that he wanted to make a music video that parodied the musical performances of bands from the 1960s variety show, like the Ed Sullivan Show of the time. He wanted to show people that the band had a really funny side to them. And in a 1993 interview with MTV, Kurt said that the video came out at the height of Nirvana being thought of as degenerates. And so he wanted a really lighthearted video. To give that authentic late 50s, kind of early 60s appearance to the films, Kurt requested that the video was to be filmed on old kinescope cameras. The music video won the award for best alternative video at the 1993 MTV Video Music Awards. So now we're moving into the Nirvana eras of 1993 to 1994. For their third album, In Utero, Nirvana wanted Steve Albini as their producer who had a really stellar reputation. And Kurt said that they chose him for his natural recording style without, quote, layers or trickery. So the album was recorded in two weeks in Pachyderm Studios in Canyon Falls, Minnesota in February of 1993 for $25,000. After the album was finished, stories were being put out in the papers that quoted sources saying that DGC label found the album, quote, unreleasable. So the fans started to really worry that the creative vision of the album was being kind of watered down by the record label. However, these claims were obviously untrue. But some aspects of Albini's mixing was criticized by Kurt again. So Scott Litt, who was a producer for R.E.M., came onto the project. Kurt has also commented on the sound of In Utero being so different to its predecessors, saying that it was more experimental, kind of new wave influenced with more noise. Saying that the band was trying to get back into what the album Incesticide was like, which again, Incesticide kind of rang true of their earlier stuff around the Bleach era. Um, he said that actually the opening line to the song Serve the Servants, which is, teenage angst is paid off well, now I'm bored and old, was a direct commentary on what he was experiencing with the grunge scene at the time. So the band was kind of experiencing this feeling of they were thrown into the limelight. They didn't really know how to act or what to do with this. 
And actually, Kirst was saying that they were kind of putting this, like, voice of a generation thing onto them. And he didn't really know, like, what to do with that. And I'm, and I'm sure, like, how do you even know what to do with that when you're considered the voice of a generation, right? You could rebel from that, or, as he said in the interview, that you could become, like, a megalomaniac and be self-absorbed in it. So it was at this point in time that they started to really look into what the music industry and the grunge scene was really about. And so they kind of was rebelling really hard against the kind of pop sound that Nevermind came out with, and they really wanted to get back into their roots. So that's what In Utero really meant to them, and I can see how that would be a really important album for them to get right. Um, And so to them, they didn't really care if in utero wasn't as commercially successful as Nevermind. Because even though it was successful, it didn't really get the numbers in terms of sales that Nevermind had, so... But they didn't really care because they just cared about putting out music that they really liked. And In Utero was released on September 21st in 1993. And the album did top the charts in America and in the UK. A quote from Time Magazine at the time around the release said, quote, Despite the fears of some alternative music fans, Nirvana hasn't gone mainstream. Though this potent new album may once again force the mainstream to go Nirvana. So In Utero went on to sell over 5 million copies in the US. So that October, Nirvana went on to tour with support from the bands Half Japanese and The Breeders. And they also added Pat Smear from the punk rock band The Germs as a second guitarist for these tours. And as we all know, Pat Samir went on to go on to their MTV Unplugged show on November 18th, which it's still acclaimed as, I think, probably the best MTV Unplugged show that ever happened. I at least can say that it's one of the best along with Alice in Chains and Pearl Jam. I'm sure a lot of people would say it is the best. Um, So Pat Smear came on as a second guitarist for those tours and for the Unplugged show. So on the MTV Unplugged show, what I found cool was they chose to not play their more well-known songs, but instead they performed several covers and they invited Chris and Kurt Kirkwood of the Meat Puppets to join them for renditions of three Meat Puppet songs. In early 1994, Nirvana went on a European tour, their last show taking place in Munich, Germany on March 1st. In Rome on March 4th, Courtney found Kurt unconscious in their hotel room and he was subsequently rushed to the hospital. He had reacted to a combination of prescription drugs and champagne that he had in his system. Of course, the rest of the tour after this was canceled. And after five days of being in the hospital, Kurt was returned to Seattle. And so, as we all know, as we're coming towards 1994, around this time, we know what happens to Kurt. I'm gonna talk a little bit about it, but I'm not gonna go in depth on his death because there's a lot of controversy, a lot of conspiracy around his death. That could, that alone, honestly, could be a whole podcast episode. On March 18th, 1994, Courtney called the police saying that Kurt was suicidal and he locked himself in a room with a gun. However, Kurt insisted that he was not suicidal and claimed he was locked in a room to get away from Courtney. So it's pretty well known that Kurt and Courtney were having a lot of marital issues. This just kind of adds to the whole layer of this story as well, with her being a role in this too. But she arranged an intervention for Kurt's drug use on March 25th. There were a couple of close friends that were there at the intervention, and 
they told Kurt that it'd be a good idea to go, and initially he was kind of angry and upset that they would do this to him, obviously, as some drug users are when you confront them with their problems and you tell them that they should get help for it when they might not be ready for it. Of course, they're going to get angry about it, but after some time, he eventually agreed to a detox program. So he arrived at the Exodus Recovery Center in LA on March 30th. So it was at this time in the recovery center that he was kind of hanging around, he was chilling out, and it was said that he was hanging around with Frances Bean, just kind of chilling with her, you know, on the floor and playing with her. And these were his last moments with Frances. The following night, Kurt stepped outside to have a cigarette and he jumped over a six-foot fence to leave the facility. Obviously, he wanted to escape. He wanted to get away from it all. It's crazy he did that. I'm not going to lie, of course, but who am I to judge what he did? You know, this is what he did, right? He took a taxi to LA airport and he flew back to Seattle. Obviously, during this time, no one knows where he is. No one knows what's going on, right? What's really interesting, though, that I've always found to be so fascinating this this bit of information was on the flight back to Seattle, he sat next to Duff McKagan of Guns N' Roses. And if you're a big Nirvana fan, you know, you know that Kurt Cobain absolutely despised Axl Rose for what he stood for in the music industry, right? So it's so fascinating that in his last moments, right, in this way, he was hanging out with Duff McKagan and Duff reported that Kurt seemed to be, you know, friendly with him and stuff, and that was fine. But in hindsight, Duff has said that, obviously, looking back, something was so wrong with Kurt. But at the time, they were just having a nice, friendly conversation. It's at this point in time, right, where he's in Seattle that is a little bit of a gray area. There are some people that said that they saw Kurt around the 2nd and 3rd of April. He was in and around like coffee shops or in and around doing this, that, and the other. Some people believe those sources. Some people don't believe those sources, but that's just what is reported that some people saw him around the 2nd and 3rd in Seattle. And no one knows where he is, right? He up and left. No one knows. So on April 7th, the band pulled out of Lollapalooza Festival because they obviously were concerned for Kurt. They had no idea where Kurt was. And it was around this time that Courtney requested the help of a private investigator to find Kurt. And unfortunately, on April 8th, 1994, Kurt was discovered dead in his Seattle home. He was found by an electrician that was coming in to install a security system. And according to him, he didn't initially think that Kurt was dead. He went in there and he saw a little bit of blood coming out of his ear and he didn't think that he was dead. He thought maybe, I don't know, he was sleeping, but he didn't think he was dead. But obviously, you know, it's suspected and it's been said and reported that Kurt died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound and a drug overdose. But obviously, like I said again, this is all, you know, some people think this, that, and the other. It's it's something that I just, I'm not really going to dive into because I have my own beliefs on what happened. Everyone else has their own beliefs on it. But I mean, I think maybe we all have an inkling of what possibly happened. And unfortunately, one way or another, however way it happened, right, we lost Kurt Cobain. We lost a legend. And so just a little bit of information kind of after Nirvana broke up. 
Because obviously, you can't have Nirvana without Kurt Cobain. So famously, of course, we all know that Dave Grohl went on to form the band Foo Fighters. He's still with Foo today. He's still rocking out with them, putting out albums. It's amazing. Uh, Kurt really wanted Dave to sing more because he really saw that Dave had that potential to sing. What's interesting about Chris, though, he was in and out of small bands here and there, um, a tribute band here and there, but nothing that really panned out to anything. It's claimed that he's always been really into politics from his early school days, and so he's been in politics ever since. The record label DGC went on to release a couple of compilation albums after Kurt's death. One of the more famous ones is the MTV Unplugged show in New York, right? That was released on November 1st, 1994. It went on to receive a Grammy for the Best Alternative Rock Album in 1996. And they also released the self-titled Nirvana compilation album on October 29th, 2002. And that famously features the song that was never heard before called You Know You're Right. And that was the last ever recorded Nirvana song. The last song that Kurt ever sang that they ever did together, that was the last song. This came out, though, after years of a really messy legal dispute between Courtney and Dave and Chris over the rights of the band's music. But the three of them settled out of court. And lastly, in 2014, Nirvana finally joined the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And that, my friends, is the story on Nirvana. A little bit of backstory on Chris and Dave and Kurt. But I hope that you guys enjoyed this podcast, this very first episode of the grunge saga or grunge series that I'm calling this, right? The first mixtape in my podcast. So this is side A, Nirvana. And continuing on side A in the next episode will be all about Alice in Chains. I can't tell you guys how really excited I am to talk about Alice in Chains. They're one of my favorite bands ever. They're kind of overshadowed, I'd say, by Nirvana and by the other bands that I'm going to be talking about in this grunge series. But I hope that you guys enjoyed and that you learned something that maybe you hadn't learned before, because that's the whole point. Having a good time talking about music and spreading the word and learning something that you hadn't maybe learned before. So I thank you guys for listening to my podcast on the mix. Again, I'm your host, Lindsay, and we'll be back very shortly to talk more about music. My favorite thing in the world to talk about. Have a nice day, everyone, and we'll see you again on the next episode.